welcome to Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 21. You may follow me on your Bibles or on the screen. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Now, I was thinking through some common traits of an, of an average contemporary Christian, and I wrote down some things for myself that I want to read out, but before that, I almost feel like I need to make a disclaimer, like they make in some of those movies before they launch into it, saying, no people intended, no animals were hurt, and things like that. Uh, this was looking at my own life and also observations of people for years that I've been walking with. So this is a fictitious character named X, and here are some things about him. X goes to church regularly and has been part of small groups for many years. X has been growing in love for Jesus but battles desires for the world. X has grown in knowledge of scriptures and can hold discussions reasonably well in reform circles. But when X discusses Christian living in light of what scripture is, there's always a conflict in his heart, or in her heart. And however, over time, X has found a way to feel less conflicted on the inside, though the grayness of many areas still remain as they are. X seems to have come to a comfortable place where the foundations are clear, but the building blocks of what a true disciple's life should be like are still not internalized. 
X is never content and continues to be materialistic. X still craves for recognition and people's opinions still bother X. X still invests below, though speaks of the treasure above. X speaks of the joy of resurrection, but still fears death on the inside. X wants to love all, but still finds some relationships unlovable. X knows the call is to seek the kingdom first, but continues to speak of how there's no time for the kingdom, though X knows what choices need to be made, but hasn't made them as yet. X faces the risk of finding comfort among other contemporary Christians who've learned to love both Jesus and the world. Is X here this morning? Now, I don't know if you relate to some aspects of that, but the church at Corinth, even as we read through what we've looked at so far and what lies ahead, they related to this and much more. Those were their struggles. And as you think through this, how is Paul encouraging them? We've already seen it, how he keeps pointing them back to the richness of the gospel and about God's wisdom. And in this chapter, if you've already noticed, he wants them to look at God's glorious blueprint for them as a church. And so the, you already have, if you've been with us in the previous four or five weeks, you've looked at how the church at Corinth had the right foundation. It was Paul who sort of founded that church, was critical at least in, in their journey. But still, they were now using worldly blocks to build further. And as they do that, they go through what a struggle that most churches go through. They always have the right foundation, but somewhere worldly wisdom begins to creep in. And so when you begin to wander away from your rich foundation, when you go a little astray from what God's wisdom truly is, then what happens always is you lose sight of that which is truly glorious. You can't really define what glory and what about God's goodness becomes a little hazy. Now, if that doesn't make sense, let me try and explain this to you. So, for example, I have to keep always reminding myself of things that I appreciate, and I have to keep sometimes asking God to give me wisdom, but what's the frame of reference with which I look at people in life? So, if I would look at somebody and say, oh, that's a beautiful woman, or that's a cute child, most often when we make comments like that, we're shaped by all the externals that we see, isn't it? Almost always. Now, sometimes, I would encourage somebody maybe with a physical ailment or a fatal sickness or some physical scar that they carry because of some unfortunate incident that happened some time back or even people who are aging. I remember talking to somebody who is growing increasingly in blindness and saying, it's not going to be like this. And we rightly always point them to how one day they're going to be perfect when the Lord comes back and how they will have a glorious body. But that glorious body and this beauty that I described at the beginning actually aren't one straight line. What do you have in mind when you say, we're going to be perfect on that day, when you think of that glorious body? My guess is nothing. I'm pretty sure, hopefully none of you are thinking that every male is going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and every woman is going to look like some version of Miss Universe. The Bible has no descriptions like that, isn't it? And so on a similar thought process, when I think of I remember people asking me the question many years back saying, you know, if you want to settle down somewhere, what kind of a home would you have? And I said, I want a home that's graceful. I want a home, I want to build a home that where the theme is grace. Now, maybe you don't get it, but I'll try and describe it and maybe you'll get a better feel of what it's like. So I want my home to have white lace curtains. I want my home to have a brick wall on the side with a little furnace. Uh, I want uh, a white picket fence around the house. I want a small lawn. I want daisies lining up the pathway. I want maybe a little 
a chirp every morning from a birdhouse that's planted just before the gate. And on the gate, maybe I want a little board that says Grace Cottage. Do you, do you understand what grace as a theme means now? Can you see it? If you see it, it's pretty ridiculous. Because that has nothing to do with grace, isn't it? And you say, okay, what should it look like then if we actually construct a house that should look like a piece of what eternity is going to be like? Maybe you remove Grace Cottage and you put a board saying a slice of heaven and then you go look at Revelation 21 and 22 and start rebuilding your house now. What's that going to look like? No more daisies, but I'll have to pave it with gold. I'll put a big jasper stone right on top of my roof and emerald and all kinds of stones all around the wall. What's that going to look like? Pearly gates to walk into. It's going to look pretty gaudy, isn't it? And so you realize all the language that is used there is not literal, but it's pointing us to something else, to a true glory, isn't it? And that's why when you look at those pearly gates, you realize the Bible says they're always open. Why? Because in that city, God is their security. When you look at those precious stones, there's something interesting. All the 12 stones that are chosen there are isotropic. I don't know what that means. I looked it up. It simply means it looks beautiful when light passes through. That's why there are no diamonds and rubies and garnets mentioned there, because they're not. What is, why are they going to be accentuated? Why are they going to be beautiful? Because there is a greater light that they are going to be radiating. And we know what that light is. And when you think of the fact that there's no sun and there's no moon, and then you realize, because there's a greater light, and everything that we read is actually pointing to God and His glory. Because He is spirit. We've seen Jesus as human, but we don't know what awaits us. And so when you think on those lines and you walk along that and you realize, okay, so if I want to actually build some sort of grace cottage, I know what's going to make it glorious. It's got to be God's presence because only when he dwells is going to be glorious, isn't it? And so I have a picture of what that home will look like. It's not going to appear on the screen. You want to see it? Look around you. This is God's glorious temple. Now you look around and you might feel a little disappointed, saying it doesn't really look like that. But you look carefully, and in each person, don't you see God's incredible, marvelous work of grace if they've given their life to Christ? Now, sometimes they're distracting you with all the externals. You need to look. I always keep telling myself to look beyond what you see. That's when you see grace, because we're so caught up with everything else, we forget to display grace, isn't it? When you look at each person, don't you see God's marvelous love at work? Think of what your lives were like. Slaves to sins of every kind, of sensual, all kinds of sensualities. Whether it's sexual impurity, whether it is lust, whether it is pride, whether it is jealousy and envy, or trying to somehow draw all the attention to yourself. God has snatched us from that and we can see that God clearly is at work and he's building this temple up. So when you look at that and you say, okay, this is God's dwelling place, then we have to ask ourselves saying, when I say I'm going to church, what do I mean? If you have this location in mind, then you're missing out, isn't it? Wherever all of God's children, all of God's people gather, that's going to be the church. And so we've got, we, we, we don't use that language sometimes. That old nursery rhyme that you've heard, that's, done, that's not good theology. And if you remember this, uh, this is the church, this is a steeple, and here are the people. You remember that one? That's not good. The people are the church. But we don't talk like that. Even now, someone would say, I'd love to get married in that cathedral. That church looks so pretty. You're still looking at the steeple, not the people. But the church looks pretty. What about the people? They don't look so pretty. Don't worry. They'll deck up on my wedding. 
We've got a completely different version of how God defines glory and how we look at it, isn't it? And so when we think of what God's glorious blueprint is for us, and when you walk through these verses, the prayer is for us is to ask God, the Spirit of God, to show us and help us see the church the way He does. Right? So you remember last week, we had a different analogy. It wasn't a building. It was an analogy of a field. And he said, you are God's field. And it described God as the owner. And it pointed, the whole passage was pointing to how all praise belongs to God. Everybody else are just co-workers and different participants in what he alone can produce growth in a field. And Paul now shifts us from a field to a construction site. And so now the analogy here is that of a building. And here the emphasis is a little different. It's not so much about organic growth. There are a couple of things that you would have noticed when you listen to the text. It's about the serious accountability with which we build. It's about the, the sacredness with which we're called to abide with God. And it's also about a whole lot of privileges that we have. And so my three points that we want to walk through are pretty much that. We want to look at building faithfully. And then we want to look at abiding reverentially. And then we want to look at living abundantly. Oh, don't worry, the prosperity gospel is not coming up at the end. But when you think of abundantly, there's a way that Jesus defines what abundant life is. And we look at that. So look at glance through verse 9. And you'll already see that Paul is saying, in his own words, saying, you know, I've got nothing to do with this. The means by which he built this was God's grace. He's attributing nothing to himself. And he knows that his grace, that's a fabric and the construct of this entire church. And then he goes on to say, but someone else is building on it. Now, when you read that, if you're a listener at that time, you probably would relate to it a little deeper to what he says, because we live in, when he says someone is building on it, it's present continuous. Now, you and I live in a city where when we drive out, we're pretty used to seeing a board which says construction in progress, and then there's a diversion for about maybe a month, and when you come back around, there's a new flyover there. But in those days, it took, in Europe, for example, it took centuries to build a church, a chapel or a massive building. And during Paul's time, it took decades to build a, a very moderate edifice or, or any sort of a temple. And so when Paul says, I'm building on it, somebody else is building on it, he's already spent about close to two years in Corinth and he's moved on. And he knows there is something going on. The church is still nascent early on in their stages. But he's got a report that makes it very concerning to him because he knows they're still on milk. And it looks like though the right foundation was laid, someone else seems to be building some sort of worldly blocks on top of that. And so he has a deep sense of concern. And you can see, therefore, in verse 11, he says something. He makes a statement, isn't it? Because to Paul, this is not a casual sort of building in his analogy. The foundation is not some special material. This was a son of God who gave himself. Now, you, you heard 1 Peter 2 when we opened, but you know 1 Peter 1, 18 19 before that tells us, you were not redeemed by precious stones like silver or gold, but you were purchased from the empty way handed down by your forefathers, by the precious blood of a lamb without defect. And so Paul knows the seriousness of this, and that's why in verse 11, he says, you cannot do this. What does he say? He says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. When you read that, you say, but a, lot, a whole lot of people seem to be building on different foundations, laying different foundations. Are they actually defying what Paul is saying? No. In reality, what those people are building is not a church. 
That's a difference. It could be a, a very socially inclined place. It's an NGO with a banner of Christ sometimes. Sometimes it's a great religious movement and has a variety of wrong foundations. Whether it's a prosperity gospel, whether it's tradition, whether it's man's word over God's word. And one of the most common ones actually, for many years it continues to draw people away, is a church that is built on experiences. I don't know if you've related to that, but so often would speak to so many people who go through that struggle. It's not a bad thing, but here, so for example, somebody would walk in and say, you know, I'm still church hopping, I haven't found what I'm looking for, like that U2 song. And then you tell them, so what do you want? There seems to be a few evangelical churches around. No, uh, I, you know, I need to feel a movement. I need to feel a powerful working of the Spirit. I say, that's what we want to. And as you talk to the person and you hear them, you realize when they speak of their testimony, it is completely anchored on a specific incident. And the more you talk to them, it seems to be specific experiences that they've had in their life. Now, that's not a problem at all. That's a good thing. But the problem is, if over time that experience becomes our foundation, not Christ a solid rock. And typically, sadly, when you engage some such people, they would be very, they would find very difficult to articulate basic foundational truth. Here's my assurance. Here's how I think I'm a member of the universal church. Here's why I think I will be there when he comes. Here's how I'm sure that I entered. Here's why I think good deeds won't save me. They don't have clarity in any of that. You see, the problem with that is, when Christ is not a solid foundation and its experiences, then the church goes through a crazy journey. And each time to redeem that journey, you have to claim some sort of an experience again. That's why I think a lot of the claim it came from. Something goes south, you got a fatal sickness, you got a job loss, that's not an experience, because what's it gonna look like then for us? And so we will speak against it. And quite often people end up in casualty, they shipwreck their faith because it's not founded on Christ. Now you keep that in mind and you say, all right, but that's not, what, that's not what's happening in the church, that's a warning for us. There are different things that will draw us away from the right foundation. Here, he says, Paul's words are, someone else is building, as in present continuous, someone is building on it, but he speaks in the same verse of a foundation that is already laid, that is past tense, it's done. So he's saying, there is building that is required now in every church. There's work that needs to go on, but no one needs to lay any foundations except what the apostles, inspired by the Spirit of God, have already done. There's only one foundation, and it is the Spirit of God that moved Paul to lay this, and Christ is that foundation. So when you look at this text, and you look at this, you realize, but he's still warning them. Their foundation is right because Paul helped them lay it. He pointed them to Christ, but he still has to warn people. They're saying, what are you using your building materials with now? Because you look at verse 12 there, you will see some of them, different kinds of material, isn't it? There's gold, there's silver, some precious stones, and some even hay and straw. And who are these builders? Anybody engaged in any sort of ministry, whatever it is that you're doing, are building on the foundation, whether that's kids or youth or adults or the church. And in fact, I think the application is wider because all of us are building our children at home, building one another as husbands and wives, walking alongside one another and building us, each other up, isn't it? So you keep that in mind and you look at this and you say, what's God reminding all of us of? He's saying there's going to be a day when your work is tested. And the day is in capital D, isn't it? 
We know what that means, the day of the Lord. And on that day, each person is going to face judgment. You might say, wait, what kind of judgment? Because I thought there's no judgment for us. Yes, there's no judgment for us in the sense when there's going to be final sifting between what's goat and sheep. And so the all-sufficient work of Christ will see us in. But when we get in, there is a judgment of our deeds. There is, like what you would see in 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we will all appear before the judgment seat. And the judgment seat there is referred, the seat there is referred to as bima, the word used there. And in Greek culture, that word referred to not a seat in a courtroom, but a seat that was a little, little away from Corinth where you ascended the steps and came before a judge who evaluated how well you did in the Olympics arena. So these are for people, for all of us, on how well you ran the faith, how well you fought the good fight, and on that day, our work will be tested. And so he says there's different kinds of rewards there, isn't it? He says this fire will consume, just like the Old Testament language, the fire will consume, all the dross will be left. I'm pretty sure that will happen to all of us. In all our serving, there will be some dross that falls off, but at the end of it, there will be something left. And he says it could be gold, it could be silver. Now, we don't know what that is. Maybe people who do not seek any honor from man and who joyfully labor, maybe that's gold. Maybe people who are faithful in small things, maybe it's silver. Maybe some others were constantly only confessing their motives. Maybe it's, it's a haystack, it's some straw. But you can see when you look through this that really the focus is not about some sort of a decline value system on the rewards, but he wants us to see two things. One, works that will be tested and will pass the test. Another, that will be tested but will not live up to it. So you keep that in mind, and when you look at that verse 15, and you read it in its context, it makes sense. Because in 15 it says, if it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through flames. In other words, what Paul wants us to imagine here is a man running out of a building. He's escaped, he's survived, but the whole building now is caught ablaze. This is a, a Christian leader who is sort of building the church, but the material he's using is not withstanding the fire. You know, I've always noticed when people read this verse, it doesn't really affect them, it doesn't shake them up. And I think when they read of this reward and what's going to happen, this verse doesn't shake them up. It's, I'll tell you why, because it's almost like in your office, maybe there's a urine appraisal, at the end of it they say, you know, you're, you really didn't contribute to any profits this year. In fact, you did a little damage, you stressed us out, so you're not going to get any bonus this year, no increments. Yeah, but you're still an employee. And people feel like that. As long as I just make it through the gates of heaven, that's all I want. Rewards, that's too far out for me. There's something wrong with that. Because an analogy of your workplace doesn't hold water here. Because you didn't enter the church or become a part of the universal church by some merit of yours. That's not how you found employment. But that covenant or that contract was signed with the precious blood of Christ himself. And grace purchased you and love compels you. How then will you not be moved to labor for the Lord? How will anyone say, I don't mind just making it through the gates as long as I get there? That's evidence that there isn't real love for the Lord. And quite often, this verse is used in the context of saying, you see, salvation is assured. Let's not talk about rewards. But there are many verses that speak of salvation that's assured. But I don't think Paul is emphasizing that here. His emphasis is not, look, even if you work for the Lord, 
you're going to get into heaven anyway. So just chill out, it doesn't matter. That's not the goal over here, isn't it? And you think through this and you say, okay, so if the foundation is really Christ, it's about a person, and if I love that person and that's what I'm building on, then why would heaven be a place that I get to that's primarily not about what Jesus would say about me? That sort of heaven that doesn't look to rewards is almost like that grace cottage that I defined in the beginning. It's fuzzy, it's not true. And so when you think of verse 13 and 14, the intention is not here to just shake you up and say, be scared about what's coming your way. But the goal is he wants us to realize any way in which you're walking alongside or building this church is critical. It is serious. And why wait for that day? Why not ask the word and the spirit of God now to search our hearts and our motives and say, Lord, what is at the heart of all that I'm doing? I seem to be plugged in, but why? Why am I preaching? Why is anybody doing what they're doing? And one way to find out if you really, if your motives really aren't in the right place is to see whether there's joy in your serving or not. And I quite often have to confess that to the Lord. It's almost like, you know, there's this, uh, I remember sometime, uh, well, not sometime back, a long time back, when, I, when we finished our board exams, we all stood out there and a lot of us were like, finally, we don't have to study Hindi and history for the rest of our lives. And sometimes people speak like that when it comes to work in the kingdom. Not exactly like that, but it could be, uh, it's Sunday morning, I wanted to sleep in, but week after week I signed up, I gotta get up early. Have you ever said that? Or sometimes it could be when I gotta teach uh, in Sunday school and I see all these people chilling out and having chai and doing other stuff, but I gotta sit here. Or it may be anything else. I gotta drive all the way for CG. I gotta do this week after week. There's worship every week. There's set up every week. Tired. And that is evidence that your joy somewhere is adulterated. Now, I'm not saying you should never feel like taking a little break, but you never take a break from the Lord. You withdraw to retreat and delight in Him and come back again. And so you keep that in mind and you notice this and you say, Lord, have I engaged like this in some manner? Because as you read the text, you can see Paul is emphasizing the seriousness of this place that you're working in. This is not some organization that requires volunteers. And he says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten who you're working for and what this place is about? And so the next verse in 16 and 17, he goes on to say, don't you know that, and so that's our second point, abiding reverently, in case you're tracking along with me. Don't you know, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. And by the way, the word used there is don't you know that you are God's temple, the you there is plural. Don't you all know, don't you all know that God's spirit dwells in you and you collectively are God's temple. Now there's a way in which he uses that in a singular manner as well. You'll see that later in, uh, in chapter 6 and verse 19. When he struggled with sexual immorality, he would say, don't you know God's spirit dwells in you individually? But here he wants us to see the richness of who we are collectively. Now this is his body. And when I read those words, God's spirit dwells in us. I cannot help but always go back and think of how this is still distant from how I feel. I, I, I find myself thinking of Mount Sinai and how he was unapproachable. I find myself thinking of all the passages in scripture on how they would come to the temple and how with fear... They would come only to a certain point. 
God lived in unapproachable light. And then now we say God lives in us. And when I think of those words, God dwells with you, I want you to think of the time we're in, the richness of what God's doing. Because the first time we hear that word actually in a covenantal sense is when he tells Abraham that they will be my people, I will be their God, and I will dwell with them. And you keep flipping through the pages of Scripture, and you come to Moses, and he's instructed to build a tabernacle, and it comes to pass. In that tabernacle, God actually dwells with them, and there's God's presence. But you read it, and you realize no one's coming close, except Moses who seems to, you feel jealous. I just wish I could get up in the morning and have this face-to-face encounter like Moses did. And when you keep reading on, this tabernacle stops moving and it becomes now a permanent structure because when you get a David, the temple is built. And God says, this is going to be the place now. And then it doesn't stop. It's still pointing to something better, isn't it? To the new covenant. Saying, this temple is going to be destroyed. Something better is going to happen. God's going to descend, not like he did at Sinai, but he's going to come down in flesh as a human. And he himself, it's unimaginable, is going to pay the punishment that you and I deserve. What stopped you from getting any access to him, he's going to resolve that. He will take on that sin and that curse. And so Christ comes and he does that. And he dies. And when he rises, he tells us now, the presence of God will not just be among you, but in you. The third person I will send to indwell in all of you who put your faith in me. That's, that's the temple now, collectively, isn't it? I don't know if you feel the weight of that or the richness of that. The only thing now that we're waiting for is for a full consummation of this. When you get to the end of Revelation in chapter 21, we'll actually hear those words. In 21.3, when you go back and read it, you will see, you hear a voice from the throne saying, these are my people, I will be their God, I will dwell with them. Imagine hearing that. You know, when we were singing showers of the, the opening song, Blessed Assurance, echoes of mercy, whispers of love we get now. Imagine hearing God then and there saying, that's it, this is your dwelling place, I'm your God, and you see him. That is what we await now, and that is what we look forward to. So keep that in mind when you think of this. And when you... Think of the words used in verse 17 saying God's temple is sacred. We have to remind ourselves, yes, it's Christ's imputed righteousness that's on us. That's getting us to be in his presence. But we're not encountering some diluted form of his holiness now. God's not saying, I'll dwell with you, but my nature has changed so I can bear with you. You think of a man in the Old Testament like Uzzah who just touched the ark and he fell dead. You think of Ananias and Sapphira who comes into a powerful movement of the Spirit and they lie and they fall dead. And you say, it's the same God that I'm called to worship now. But somehow in the new covenant, when he's in us, we found a way to say, I'm adopted. But it mostly is just about our acceptance. It's not about he dwells in me. How set apart should my life be? Because I'm a temple that's sacred. You see... And God uses the words there in that verse saying that he will destroy anyone who builds in a wrong manner on his church. I want us to realize that when we think of this, this invitation to a sacred temple is not to live a very restricted life that's horrible, but he's inviting you to share in his glory and his holiness. Saying there's nothing greater than my son. I want you to become more like him and taste in his goodness. That's the invitation, isn't it? And when you read these passages, don't you see he's protective and he cares for you and he's jealous in a good way 
and you're really precious, you keep all that in mind, you have to remind yourself, that is the truth of how God sees us. How loved, how secure, how precious. Most of the passages that you read, even in the Old Testament, that speak about how much, how loved you are, are in a collective sense. You are Deuteronomy uh, in the beginning, in chapter 2. And just before that, in chapter 1, when you go back and look at verse 31, you'll see, like a father carries his son, I carried you. You look at Zechariah 2.8 and he says, you're like the apple of my eye. You go to Zephaniah 3.15, he will say, I will sing over you, I will delight over you. And that's the way God feels about us. Now imagine the church at Corinth and us understood this. There'd be so little room for divisions and factions and envy among one, one, one another, isn't it? When there's a division among believers, there will be hurt. But increasingly that hurt should be primarily because this is happening to the body of Christ. It's not about my personal rejection. We need to ask God to get us there. Because when a church keeps growing and we realize I'm so loved and I'm so precious and I'm so secure, that hurt must stop becoming about our personal ego that is hurt and it should be sharing in some way in the affliction of Christ. These are his people. This is his body. Shape me and help me to feel the way you want me to feel, Lord. So you remember that and then you say, okay, now I think I get what Paul's saying over here. Now I see the seriousness when he says he will destroy the person who builds in a manner that takes people away from God. If only false teachers and the prosperity gospel teachers and the others knew the kind of warning or the kind of wrath that awaits them, they would repent. And you look at verse 18 now and he says, don't deceive yourself. Why? If anyone thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he must become a fool. He must become a fool. The word become there, the verb used there, is actually used in a past tense. What he's telling believers is, look, you're becoming worldly. You need to become a fool. Go back to the message that laid your foundation. Go back to chapter 1 that we looked at, the message of the cross. It's foolishness to the world. You need to become that fool to the world. But you now seem to be showing characteristics where you seem to become wise, but that's shaped by the world. Because you seem to now be influenced by the world because you're looking at people and rating them by their eloquence and how sophisticated they are and how influential they are. And he's warning them saying, you're becoming like the world. And so he tells them, in fact, the verses there that tells you, you are God's field, you are God's temple like we hear today. That is a passive verb. You didn't do anything to become God's temple, isn't it? Or to be part of his field. You're a passive recipient of what God did. That's how you became his child. There are two ways of becoming, do you see? One is God did this and that's your identity. The other is you're trying to earn, you're building using worldly blocks now to become someone else. Refrain from that. That's the warning I think at the heart of this. And he's telling people, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself about what? About your identity. How are people deceiving themselves? People are insecure deep within. And so you try somehow to make a position, somehow to save as much as you can to find security. You try and cover up your inferiority by somehow decking yourself up or displaying some skill of yours. You try and cover your loneliness by getting on some digital platform and that, that, that's actually an abuse of time most often. And you realize, well, 
when I look at the verses, the next few verses, I can relate to that. God's saying, you know, the wise ones of the world, their ways are futile. Why? You can do all of this. It's not going to meet your greatest need on the inside. So we say, okay, what's the truth then? The humbling truth is you are insecure. The truth is you are not in control of things. Now, would you admit that? But when you admit that, the world is going to call you a fool. That's the problem. That's why when you want to live out these values and you say, that's the truth. I'm not the self-confident person. I can do nothing apart from him. I'm dependent and I'm vulnerable. The world says, you're an idiot. We don't want you at our workplace. And you say, this is really foolish, Lord. The world calls me a moron. And so when you look at this, you realize and you say, quite often we talk like that. Lord, Christianity is so difficult. It's such a narrow path and I have to be a fool in the eyes of people because you've listened to only half of what God wants you to say. God wants you to hear. Because God, the invitation here is not, I want you to be losers, but I want you to be conquerors. What does he mean? What Paul actually is telling them here is, would you stop your your worldly boasting because it's a cheap substitute? What are you boasting in men? It's a cheap substitute. Do you know what you actually have? That's what he's leading them to. You are looking at people and saying, look at Paul, look at Apollos. You don't get this. Do you know what you already have? And that's why that last verse is so critical for us. I don't know if you've read it before, and I don't know if you believe it. Let me read it for you again in its entirety. All things are yours. Ask yourself if you believe that all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. You know this envy and jealousy and these factions they had, that is proof that they do not know what they have. That's why you struggle with covetousness, because you don't know what you really have. And so I want us to look at the last point, living abundantly. What do I take away from this verse? Look at the question that Paul's asking them. What are you looking at with these leaders amongst you, with Cephas and Apollos? You can ask them, okay, so that Sunday school teacher is better than this, and I think this one's better than that, and saying, stop, all of them are yours. They all belong to Christ, and everybody is here to serve you. But some of us still don't believe that, isn't it? We're still like people who are saved, in a sense, like Peter, but still at the end of John 21, when Jesus says, follow me, what does he do? He looks back and he says, what about John, Lord? Don't you do that often? And we still haven't realized, some of us still need to realize that we are like that elder brother. We are still not healed from some past way in which we were treated. And you're still waiting for healing. Why? Because you have not heard the father's words. The elder brother had to hear it again. Son, everything I have is yours. He didn't know it. We're still looking for people to fill that gap in us. And so look at, look at everything that's here in verse 21. The world, life, death, present, and the future. If only we believe this. You know, I remember reading this many years back. Anything that you look at, you lift any rock beneath it, any tree, below all of that is a signature made by Jesus. And why? Because you, one of the heart of us, and you are of Christ. Because you are Christ's body. You are Christ's sibling. He's your elder brother. You are Christ's bride. 
You are Christ's co-heir, like in Romans 8, 16 and 17. Why? Because Christ is of God. He's God's. He's God's only begotten Son. He's God's word to us. He's God's radiance to us, God's glory to us. He's God's image. And you are now restored to God's image. And you are a co-heir. So you actually can go home tonight, stand outside your home, look at the stars and say, look at that, that belongs to my dad. You don't feel like that, don't you? You can go for a walk in the park and look at the sparrows and say, God, they have no bank accounts. But you care for them, how much more precious I am. You can look at the flowers and say, what kind of glory am I seeking? Look at this glory, but you, you promise that you will clothe me in splendor one day. You look at all that and say, Lord, when I observe life, I can see traces of Eden already, especially in the church. But there's one thing that stands between me and Eden, that's death. And even death is mentioned here, isn't it? You don't, death is no longer your slave. Christ has conquered it. So to the world, death is the end of everything. But for you, it's the beginning. It's a pathway to glory. But we don't feel like that. I often don't feel like that. If you walked up to your friend who's applying some anti-aging cream and said, whoa, 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 hold on. I just saw three, incur three wrinkles on your face. That's incredible. You're closer to the Lord. Do you speak like that? That's not the language we speak. I'm not saying don't use cream. But I want you to think of the values and the way in which you look at life. It is shaped so powerfully by the world sometimes. And look at the other things over here, not just death. And you know what? He's not just talking about death and the future. I love the part where he says all things are yours, even the present. When you read the present, do you relate to that? Because you might say, a lot of my experiences don't stack up like this is really about God's glory. I've got some experiences that don't make this so glorious. But God will tell you, would you just look to me and my love and my glorious blueprint and you might still see it differently. Because, let me explain. In this passage, he, call, he uses the words of stones and precious stones when he refers to the building. I think he intentionally wants us to think of the temple saying, look, you're that temple. And so when you look around, there are many living stones that are being built up into Christ. And each one is going to shine for the Lord. That might look different, isn't it, in a variety of ways. Maybe somebody is getting closer to death, but they're pretty joyful, they're not fearful, because you're shining out the fact and you're showing people that life that is truly life is closer to me now. Maybe some of you are now beginning to realize that you actually enjoy darkness and not light because you always wanted attention, and so now you're beginning to actually shine because you intentionally are doing things in secret. You don't want people to know about it, and God says, I love that stone because I can now radiate through you. Some of you are rejected, but you still love people. That's a stone, a living stone that the world doesn't know. You're reflecting God's love. Some of you are willing to be weak and vulnerable. That's a stone the world doesn't know. The church alone can show them what true worth is. And some of you are alone, but lonely. You're alone, but you're not lonely. And you know what that stone is? That is incredible. That's a precious one. Because you are radiating the very presence of God. It's not a verse to you. He will never leave me nor forsake me. You're radiating that. And you realize that every experience is shaping some believer in some manner. And all of this is reflecting God's glory. And that's God's glorious blueprint. Because it says in Ephesians 3.10, he's going to display this, this church of his in the heavenly realms. 
You keep that in mind and you realize, oh, this call isn't so much about give it up, give it up. That's what it feels like, isn't it? Oh, such a sacrificial call, give it up. No, what he's actually saying here is I want you to live abundantly because you have it all. Would you show people that you have it all? And quite, quite often when you show that, they might see a pauper, but they will see real richness. They might see real broken treasures of jar, but they will actually see the gospel. So God wants us to display that. You know, I thought of this illustration, and I'll bring this to close. I remember times when we were kids, and you might relate to this, when you travel with your parents. You go on a journey, and the journey is incredible. You don't need to do anything. They book your ticket. They plan your meals. They know where you're going to sleep. You land up your accommodation. Your bed is sorted. It doesn't matter who's got money. You love that journey, isn't it? It's pretty different now when you have to plan for all your kids. But in that journey, you were not anxious, though you were not in control of anything, isn't it? Didn't you love that journey? Isn't that the same when your father carries you in this journey of life? Shouldn't it be like that? And don't you want to make this journey available to others in the way you raise your children? In the way you walk with this family that's around you? Don't you want them to at some point say, you know, show them and get them to walk joyfully, saying, the father's thought of every need that you already have. He knows. But sometimes it feels like an undeserved compartment. Have you ever been on one? But sometimes it feels like an undeserved business class seat. We say, but all of these experiences are already planned and God through all of this is causing me to see something about him and radiate something about him. And we know what this blueprint is going to end like. You know what the end destination is. Because the Lord who gave himself for us went ahead and he said, I'm going ahead. And in my father's house are many mansions and I'm preparing a place for you. Would you ask the Lord to open your eyes to see who you are, what the church is, what his glorious plan is, and irrespective of where you are in your life's journey, ask him to make it a life that is abundant. When you think things are removed from you, it's the enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy what you already have. Would you take a moment in silence to reflect on the words, all things are yours. And what it cost the son and the love that the Father has for you. All things are yours. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.